What if it's all a myth? What if everything we've built our faith on is just made up? After all, most people in Stranar tonight, they, they don't believe what, what we believe. What if we're wrong? What if it's all made up? That's the claim that Peter's readers were facing. Uh, that's what they were hearing from those around them. And particularly what they were being told was a myth, was the idea that Jesus was coming back. That's something that Peter will address head on explicitly when he gets to chapter 3 verse 4. Uh, chapter 3 verse 4 there he, he quotes the scoffers. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, sure the world's going on just as it always has. You're deluded if you think Jesus is going to come back. And those same claims are, are there in the background to Peter's words that we're looking at this evening as well. When Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, can you hear the, the, the accusation behind the words? What's the claim that his readers would have been hearing from their neighbours, from their colleagues, from unbelieving family members? Well, surely, based on what Peter says here, the claim that they've been hearing is that they are following cleverly devised myths. And in particular, this idea that Jesus, uh, that man who had been crucified, that he was going to come back again, in particular, the claim that, that his second coming is a myth. That's what the word coming in verse 16 refers to. It would be very possible to read verse 16 and think that it refers to the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, that's how some of the older interpreters take it. But the Greek word that's used here is never used in the Bible for Jesus' first coming. Uh, when this word is used of Jesus, it, it's always speaking of his second coming. Uh, and we could give it example after example of that. Uh, for example, the verse I've already mentioned, chapter 3, verse 4, the scoffers say, Where is the promise of his coming? And it's the same word used here. In fact, you may occasionally refer, hear Jesus' second coming referred to as the parousia in reference to this Greek word for coming, which is repeatedly used in the New Testament for Jesus' second coming. Remember as well the context of this book. What is Second Peter all about? It's been a few weeks since we looked at it, so it's okay if you need a reminder. Second Peter is about ethics through eschatology. In other words, it's about how we're to live now in light of then. How we're to live now in light of the fact that Jesus is soon coming back. 
So, so the word that's used, the, the context of the, of the book, uh, they both make it clear that it's Jesus' second coming uh, that's in view here. After all, were people in Peter's day saying that Jesus' first coming was a myth? Probably not. Even in our own day, few would deny that Jesus was born, lived, taught and died. It's not his first coming that people tend to deny. It's his second coming. I know it's only September, but the Christmas stuff is already appearing in the shops. Uh, other stuff is being reduced and cleared away to make room for it. Um, before long, we'll be hearing lots about Advent but the advent that our culture marks is the wrong advent. The word advent means coming. But like here, it was originally a reference to Jesus' second coming, not his first coming. That's what the, the traditional readings for advent are all about. The, the return of Christ. People are more than happy to remember and sing and think about Jesus' first coming. But they're not so keen to think about his second coming. No, they say, it's all a cleverly devised myth. And so here Peter, through the Holy Spirit, gives us two reasons why we can be absolutely confident that it's not a myth. And we'll take those two reasons as our two headings tonight. So firstly, tonight, we can be confident about the second coming because the apostles were given a preview of it. We can be confident about the second coming because the apostles were given a preview of it. Imagine that you've been waiting for years for a film to be released. And you start to wonder whether it's ever going to come out. But then the trailer is released uh, and it gives you confidence that the film's release date is just around the corner. Because sometimes films are, are, shelved, are shelved uh, last month, Warner Brothers scrapped the Batgirl film they'd been working on since 2017. I'm not sure if anyone here was looking forward to it, uh, but it, it had been uh, filmed entirely in Glasgow. I think Glasgow Council had given them uh, 150000 or something uh, to make sure they did that. Uh, just a drop in the bucket compared to the, the, the $90 million that had been spent on the film. It was on the cusp of completion and then it was cancelled. No trailer for it was ever released. But once the trailer drops for a film, once the preview is released, we know that the real thing isn't too far away, that it's all been signed off, that it is coming. And in Jesus' transfiguration, three of the apostles had been given a preview of his second coming. It's like a, like a private select showing of what's coming. It's clear if, if you look at verses 17 and 18 that Peter is referring to what happened at the transfiguration which is recorded for us in Matthew 17, Mark 9 and Luke 9. That's when they were on the mountain with Jesus. It's called the holy mountain here not because there's anything special about that mountain but because that's where Jesus appeared to them. That's when they heard God the Father speaking from heaven. And that, Peter is telling us here, was a preview of the second coming. 
Back up in verse 3, we saw how Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we saw then that those two words, life and godliness, they're meant to be taken together. Peter's not saying that God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to, to physical life and all things that pertain to spiritual life. Though in a sense that would be true. But he's saying there that God has given us everything that we need to live the godly life. So life and godliness, it means the godly life. Uh, the technical name for it is a, is a hendiadis, which means one through two. One concept expressed through two words. Uh, and hopefully we'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. But when we say that a room is nice and, and warm, we don't mean that it's a nice room and it's also warm. We mean that it's nice because it's warm. And so the reason I say all this is because we, we have the same thing here in verse 16. When Peter says to you, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're to put the phrase together and to understand Peter as talking about the powerful coming of Jesus when Peter's saying we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, he's not saying, well, we had a series of sermons on Jesus' power and then we had a series of sermons on his coming. Rather, he's talking about Jesus' powerful coming. And Peter says that at the transfiguration, he and his fellow apostles were eyewitnesses to the very majesty of Christ that, that the whole world will see at his second coming. Because the transfiguration is a preview of that powerful coming. And that actually explains a verse in the Gospels that, that many Christians struggle with. It's a verse that's in all three Gospel accounts. If you look up the transfiguration, you'll, you'll find a heading in the Bible that says that the transfiguration, at least if you're following in, in our pew Bibles, but each time, if if you were to cast your verse, your your eye back one verse earlier, you'd find that the previous section closes with Jesus saying something like this. Uh, we read the, the version in Mark nine earlier. Here's Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom." And in Matthew's account, then that's the end of the chapter. New chapter, transfiguration, and we think it's talking about something completely different. And it can be really perplexing for us because it sounds as if Jesus has just said that there are some standing there who won't die until the second coming happens. But that was 2,000 years ago. Everyone standing there that day has been dead for millennia and the second coming hasn't happened yet. And so some people point to that and say, see, Jesus said people people standing there wouldn't die until the, se until the second coming. Uh, so it's, it's all a myth. Jesus was wrong. But if we realise that the transfiguration was a preview of the second coming, as Peter is telling us here, then suddenly it all makes sense. When Jesus says that some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, He's talking about the foretaste of that which they would get at the transfiguration. Uh, and in, in the Gospels, it's, it's connected. We, we read, uh, for example, after six days they were up a high mountain. It, it links the two things together. Uh, 
That's how Peter clearly understands the transfiguration here. Uh, He's got his understanding of it from the Lord Jesus himself. And now he's telling his readers about it. And he's saying, you can know for sure that Jesus is coming because James, John and I saw him in the very same majesty with which he'll come back. For that brief time, the curtain was pulled back and they saw the Lord in his majestic glory. That glory which he he veiled uh, for so much of his time on earth. In verses 17 and 18, Peter reminds him of, of the voice that he heard from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It was the father's seal of approval on the son. It tells us that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. That language of you are my son, it comes from Psalm 2. Jesus is the promised king that God's people have been singing about for a thousand years before the time of Peter. People say, if only I could hear a voice from heaven. But God has spoken to us from heaven. The apostles testify to that. And they performed signs and wonders to to verify that their word was true. And so we can be confident about the second coming because the apostles were given a preview of it. If someone says to you that that film you've been looking forward to for so long, if they say, well, it's not really coming, it's all just rumours, it's all just a myth, it's never going to happen. Well, if you've seen the trailer, you can say, it is happening, I I know it because I've seen the preview, it really is coming And so for our sakes, Peter, James and John were given that preview. It's recorded for us four times in scriptures, three times in the Gospels, one time here. What more do we need? The voice from heaven that people long for has already happened. And so the question facing each of us tonight isn't whether the second coming is a myth because it's real Jesus really is coming back bodily, visibly every eye will see him the question isn't whether Jesus is coming back the question is whether we're ready for when he does because the Bible is clear that many won't be ready it's clear that some will call on the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face on him who sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb Many won't be ready. So how can we be? Only if we come to God through his beloved son. God's whole love uh, dwells and centres on Jesus Christ. uh, To quote Calvin. Uh, God's whole love dwells and centres on Jesus Christ. And so the only way for, for any of us to experience God's love is to come to him through Christ The love and favour of God isn't to be sought anywhere else because it won't be found anywhere else. And the amazing news is that if we do that, if we do come to him through Christ, then what's true of Jesus here will also be true of us. If you're in Christ tonight, then the Father looks at you and says, This is my beloved Son, 
This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And maybe the, the devil comes to, to make an accusation against you like he came to make an accusation against Job. God says to the devil, No, no, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And so the second coming is not something we need to fear. But rather we can look forward to it. We can make the, the prayer of the penultimate verse of the Bible our own. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We can be confident about the reality of the second coming because the apostles were given a preview of it. But we can also be confident not just about the reality of it, but we can be confident about what it will mean for us. We can look forward to it confidently and not with dread because the transfiguration reminds us that the Father is well pleased with the Son and so he will be well pleased with everyone who comes to him through the Son. But then secondly this evening, secondly, second reason we can be confident about the second coming is because the Bible can be relied on. So we can be confident about the second coming because the apostles were given a preview. Secondly, we can be confident about the second coming because the Bible can be relied on. Peter now brings forth a second witness to the fact that the second coming is real and it's not a myth. And that is the word of God itself. When we get to verse 19, there is a bit of a question as to how it should be translated. It may be saying that in the Bible we have a more sure word than even a voice from heaven. And that is true. For Peter, James and John on the mountain with the Lord Jesus, there could be no doubt about who was speaking. But for us, if we were to hear a voice from heaven... How could we be sure that it was God speaking? And even if we were sure, how could we be sure he was speaking to us and not someone else? And in that sense, the Bible is a more sure word than even a voice from heaven. So that, that's one way to understand the verse. And that's, I think that's a, that's, that's a, that's a right. That's, that's true. Though almost all translations take verse 19, uh, as our version does here, by saying we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word now in our day more fully confirmed. Now it is impossible to make the Bible any more certain than it already is. But I think the point here is that because so many of the prophecies about Jesus have already been fulfilled, then that gives us even more confidence in God's word. God's word is, is objectively certain all the time. It's objectively true whether we believe it or not. And, and yet our subjective confidence in God's word can go up and down. Our, our confidence in the truth of it can go up and down. But the fact that so many prophecies have already been fulfilled should increase our confidence. Uh, and the event particularly in view here 
which makes the Bible's prophecies more true for us is the transfiguration. We've already seen how the language of, of you are my son is a fulfilment of Psalm 2. But, but in these few verses, there are more Old Testament, Old Testament sayings that are fulfilled. The father calling Jesus his beloved son is likely a reference to Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac. In Peter's Old Testament translation, Isaac is twice referred to as Abraham's beloved son. And here Jesus is called the, the beloved son. So at the transfiguration, we have the fulfillment of words spoken uh, to David. We have the fulfillment of words spoken to Abraham. And then Peter's comment in verse 17 that the son received honour and glory from the father. It surely also points us to Psalm 8, where we're told that the father crowned the son with glory and honour. It's the prophetic word applied to Jesus in a voice from heaven. And so now more fully confirmed. Maybe after Peter brought out his first line of evidence, his eyewitness testimony, someone might have said, well, it's okay for you, Peter, because you were there on the mountain. But how can the rest of us be confident about the second coming? Peter's answer is, because the Bible tells you so. Because the Bible tells you so. And as a result, between now and the second coming, however long or short that may be, Peter says you would do well to pay attention to that word. Why? Because it is like a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter here is surely lifting an illustration from, from yet another psalm, uh, Psalm 119 we read earlier. Uh, it tells us God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. At times as Christians we're surprised that the world is a dark place. We'd rather live in some other place or some other time where, where the world isn't quite so dark. But the question isn't whether the world will be dark. Uh, it will the question is whether we're following the light. Think of your privileges compared to the unbeliever. They too live in darkness, but they have no light to guide them. And because they have no light, they don't even realise most of the time that they are in darkness. And so Peter says, because you have this word, you would do well to pay attention to it. And I know that many of you do. It's so encouraging to, to hear you talking about what you've been reading in the Bible or what you've been listening to in the Bible. But there may be those here tonight who, who need the prodding of the Holy Spirit. Here we have Peter. He, he spent three years with Jesus. He, he's heard God speaking to him from heaven. But he hasn't moved beyond his need for the Bible. We know from later on in this book that, that, that he's been reading Paul's letters. Uh, he, he even says that there's some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And we say, Amen, Peter, I know what you mean. But Peter says, I, I know bits of the Bible are hard to understand, but you do well to pay attention to it. You do well to work hard at understanding it and living in light of it. Until 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, until Jesus returns. And when he does, then because of that light, you won't need the Bible anymore because you will see him and talk with him face to face. But until then, we need our Bibles because through those pages, we meet him. Peter then spends the last two verses of the chapter dealing with some objections. Objections which would cause us to lose confidence in the Bible and to lay it aside. Again, probably coming from the skeptics of his day. The, the claim in verse 20 seems to be that scriptural prophecies come from someone's own interpretation. The skeptics may have said, well, yes, people receive visions from God. We don't deny that, but... But how would they know what the vision means? What's to say that their interpretation of it is the right one? It's just human guesswork. And, and don't we, we hear people even saying to us along the same lines, well, that's just your interpretation. But Peter says, no, we're not dependent on anyone's fallible human opinion. But rather, verse 21, the prophets spoke... And when they did, they weren't telling people what they thought God was saying. Rather, as they spoke, as they wrote, they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if we rightly interpret that word, if anyone rightly interprets that word, then the Bible, it's not just our interpretation, but it's God's message to the world. If you are doubtful about whether some course of action is the right one, you won't do it with much conviction. But you can be certain about the Bible. You can stake your life on it. You can take difficult decisions because of what's contained in it. You can live differently from those around you because you are living in light of the second coming. Which we know from the Bible is more certain than whether tomorrow dawns or not. Will tomorrow dawn? We don't know. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But the second coming, we can be absolutely sure of that. And so as we draw things to a close tonight, I want to do so as we did this morning with the great hope of the Christian in the face of death. I was talking to someone during the week who, who ended up getting really distressed by the Queen's funeral because it brought back memories for, for them of their mum dying. And apparently a lot of people were in the same boat. And if you think about it, if people have maybe, they're not used to going to funerals, maybe the only funeral they've ever been at was for a close family member and suddenly, suddenly it's right on TV in front of them and it's bringing back a lot of memories that, that haven't come back for a long time. And and for the unbeliever, death is terrifying. It is the worst possible outcome. It is to be avoided at all costs. But not for us. For the believer, all that death can do for you is usher you into the immediate presence of your Saviour. For the unbeliever, the thought of death is the thought of impending darkness and blackness. But for the unbeliever, for the believer rather, 
It is the day dawning. It is the day dawning. The only darkness of death is the darkness that comes just before the dawn. Uh, As it says here in verse 19, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Children are scared of the darkness at times, but, but they're not scared of the dawning. And for the believer, that's what will come at your death. Or the second coming, whichever comes first. But the day is going to dawn. And you don't need to be scared of the day dawning. As it's put in the Song of Solomon, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And even as you face death, however short or near that may be, even if it seems like the the darkest experience of your life, remember in that moment that for you as a believer that it is it is simply the fact that the night is darkest just before the dawn because unless you have that hope then being convinced of of the reality of the second coming it, it won't be much help because you'll just be convinced of the reality of something that terrifies you before the christian the second coming Death, whatever comes first, it's the dawning of a new day. The long winter will finally be over and spring will have arrived. And in order for us to have that confidence, we must put our hope in what Jesus did at his first coming. So that we might be ready for and even look forward to his second coming. Amen. Well, let's close by singing another of the psalms referenced in these verses, Psalm 8a, Psalm 8a on page 10. Psalm 8a, page 10. We were thinking this morning of how God is infinitely above the angels. And yet in verse 5 here, the Lord Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. So, so that, that is not a, not a little step down. That is uh, for the Lord Jesus to, to infinitely humble himself. And then in the second half of the verse, we have the same words used in Second Peter. Uh, glory and renown, or glory and honour. Just a, as Peter tells us that the Lord Jesus received honour and glory from the Father at the Transfiguration. So Psalm 8a, uh, tune 91, will stand and sing praise. Mm.